Hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast. I hope you're very well. I am. And I've just been doing check-ins with my one-to-one clients. And I wanted to share a bit of this one because I thought it was such a good example of the mindset that it takes to succeed, but also the reality. Because I think sometimes when we talk about mindset and now and again, like something came up in the group the other day and someone was like, oh, I know Emma's going to say like, you know, don't expect results from the work that you didn't put in. And as much as that is um, correct, and I would say that, I also completely realise it's not like, it's easier said than done, right? But then I think the 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 comeback to that is literally everything is easier said than done and it does just take action but this is quite a good example of like it is hard but (laughs) this is the attitude you need to take to still then take action so let me just find this should i have prepared before yes could i pause the pause the podcast right now yes but have i done either no and oh look here it is Okay, so one of the questions I ask is, what is your focus at the moment and what do you feel is holding you back? And she answered, the only thing that can hold me back is me. Correct. She said, my family is supportive. I have access to places to walk, a gym and healthy food choices. And I think that's such an important thing to realise. Like one, you are the only person in your own way, especially when it comes to things like fat loss. And two... And this doesn't go for everyone, but actually it goes for probably the majority of people listening. You're actually in a really privileged position to like be able to get to a gym, to be able to afford coaching, to be able to get out for a walk, to be able to make these healthy food choices and choose what you can eat and how much of what you eat. Um, how much of what you eat, you eat. So I think realizing that is important. And then she said, I do feel self-conscious in the gym and I worry that people are laughing at me, sorry, laughing at the fatty and the puny weights I'm using at the moment. I know the more that I go, the more that I will feel comfortable there. And again, I like that of like being like, do you know what? Yeah, I do realize it is hard and I do feel a bit self-conscious, but I still know that the only way through that is through. Like there's nothing that you can do with that feeling apart from just like realizing one, it, like do I know that this feeling is true no and I am a hundred percent sure that people aren't laughing at this person in the gym and aren't laughing at the quote-unquote puny weights either and I'm always way more impressed if I see someone in the gym who looks like they've not maybe, maybe they look a little bit unsure or it looks like maybe it's their first time or they're just starting again or maybe they're overweight or maybe they're not as fit as some other people in the gym but that's way harder to go like that actually takes quite a lot of effort to go, to go out of your comfort zone versus like the people I see in the gym every single day because we all like going to the gym. That is like, you know, quite a lot less impressive. I think people are like, oh, you must be so disciplined, so determined. And, and like, yeah, now and again, I'm like, oh, I really can't be bothered, but I'm going to make myself go anyway. But realistically, the ba- the vast, the vast, which I've made up, Uh, as a word and also vast majority of the time I actually like going to the gym so it's a hell of a lot easier for me to go versus the people that maybe don't like going or don't like going yet or enjoy going but just feel a little bit uncomfortable so I thought that was um hopefully useful to some and today is 
an episode that has been um what's the right word inspired by suggested by somewhat created by one of our commit six clients Portia who had this great idea about doing a bit of a myth busting podcast so I posted in the commit six group to see what the most prominent myths were and maybe like the ones I should cover and I've collected some of them here I haven't gone through all of them but I will probably do a part two to this but first I'll get started with part one of myth busting and what I think is quite interesting about myths is that they tend to stick around and that's usually because there is an element of truth in them so I'm going to kind of discuss these two I'm not just going to be like here's a myth not true here's another myth also not true I'm going to be like hmm potentially true in this situation or this is why people think this is true or there are pros and cons to this but this is probably why it's working I'm going to go through it like that as if you've listened to this podcast before you probably will know so I'm not just going to dismiss them I'll um, take the lessons that we can from them because often there are lessons with these and actually there's a lesson in the first one so this is from Celine and she said that eating as as a myth this isn't what she said this is the myth right eating late at night is the worst thing you can do and will equal it causing fat to to be stored um and then also that not eating within the first hour of getting up is the worst thing that you can do for your metabolism and that your body will think that it's starving and hold on to fat. So what was that not eating within the first half hour of getting up? Jesus, your body will think it's starving. Um, okay, she's got quite a few here. So I'm gonna go through those first two. So eating late at night is the worst thing you can do and it'll be sore as fat. This is quite common, you know, like don't eat after 6 p.m. because you won't have time to burn it off. Well, in reality, one of the things that have enabled humans to survive for so long is our ability to store energy for later use. Okay, so if you eat after 6pm, doesn't mean you then have to burn it between 6pm and whenever you go to bed, right? It doesn't work that short term. Now, I think when you say that to someone, they're like, oh yeah, that does seem like a little bit of an odd thing and, and doesn't really make that much sense. But I think when someone explains it the other way of like, well, yeah, obviously, if you eat after 6pm, you won't burn off all that energy and then you'll go to bed and it'll just be stored as fat. Which technically isn't true because that's how we store energy, right? But it doesn't really matter when you eat that energy, it will always be stored in some way, potentially primarily as body fat if glycogen stores are full. And it'll be stored and then used for later use. So it doesn't really matter that it's after 6 p.m. or before 6 p.m. is thinking too short-term about things. However, the lesson here might be, if someone actually implements that, i.e. I'm not going to eat after, I mean, 6 p.m. is pretty early, but like, I don't know, whatever time you normally have dinner, the likelihood is you will lose weight because most people who overeat tend to overeat in the evening after dinner. So actually, from a practical perspective, that rule is quite good right and then people misattribute their success to oh it must be because I'm I'm not going to bed having just eaten and then storing that fat no no it's because you're eating less 
and then you're in a calorie deficit and that's why you're losing fat. So again, understanding how that rule works or why that rule works allows you to use a bit more common sense with it. So like, I don't know, say you end up having your dinner a little bit later, you're not like, oh my God, I can't eat anything because I've, I've missed my cut off. Actually, you can, you can still eat something and then just like not snack in the evening. Basically, the rule is not snacking in the evening. That's what's getting you results. And then the the second one about not eating during the first, oh, sorry, not eating within the first hour, half hour of the day is the worst thing that you can do and your metabolism will think it's starving and then hold on to fat is obviously not true. I mean, just give an example of like anyone who's ever lost weight doing sort of like intermittent fasting um, or just like generally, like we're not that um, sensitive as a species. Like, can you imagine if that was what happened? Like, oh, sorry, like your whole metabolism's thinks that it's starving because you didn't eat for 30 minutes after you woke up like it, it is a little bit ridiculous but again if we put this into a practical perspective that if you believe that it probably means you're going to have a decent sized breakfast and often people who have a decent sized breakfast then don't overeat or snack on things before lunch or at lunch and then generally they might end up eating less Right, so for some people, eating breakfast is a really good thing and works really well for them diet-wise. That isn't necessarily true for everybody. And what's interesting is that the study that most people quote on this of like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And it was like, you know, Kellogg's and all like cereal companies loved this because obviously it emphasized that that was a really important time to eat. But the study was like misinterpreted. It didn't really show what people said that it showed when you look at it a little bit more closely. So it had a group of people who didn't eat breakfast and then a group of people who did eat breakfast and then they were invited to a lunch where they could eat what's known as ad lib. So like have as much of this like buffet lunch as you want. And shockingly, the people who came having not had breakfast ate more lunch. And here's, so then you, you think, all oh, right, okay, well, that's true. You eat more later in the day if you don't have breakfast. And that was kind of the line that was taken from it. If you don't have breakfast, you will end up eating more later in the day. And then you can extrapolate that to, and then you're being like more likely to put on body fat or less likely to stick to your diet or whatever your goal is at the time. However, the people who ate more at lunch still ate less overall than the people who had breakfast. And that's because if you add on the calories that you consumed at breakfast, it wasn't as much as the people that like as, the people at lunch didn't overeat by as much as the calories that were consumed during breakfast. So they would have still been in a bigger calorie deficit, assuming dieting was the goal, or they would have still generally over the, the course of those two meals consumed less food. So actually is breakfast the most important meal there? And I think the point is, figure out what works for you. If you like having breakfast, if it suits you well, great, have it. If you're not having breakfast, and this is a conversation I have a lot with people who are like, I'm doing this, is that okay? And I'm like, oh, are you, are you feeling okay? Are you getting results? Oh yeah, like I'm getting great results, I feel great. I've, I've always done this. Happened a lot this week with faster training because there's been a lot of like misinformation around that. And I did a reel on it and I had a few people message me oh, I've, I've been training fasted for years. Like, it, it, should I be really worried about it? No. No. Do you feel fine? Yes. Are you getting results? 
yes okay then no but if you're like I've been faster training for years and I've lost my period and I feel really stressed and I'm really lethargic and I struggle with binge eating and like uh, yeah you probably shouldn't be doing faster training and same with like oh I've been having breakfast and I feel great having breakfast but I've heard other people don't have breakfast is that something I should be avoiding no not if you're getting the results that you want having breakfast and that's how you enjoy eating and then there's just a few more from Celine I won't say who she's got these from um fruit is high in sugar and thus fattening again one of my absolute pet peeves especially at the moment with the increased use of glucose monitors and people thinking oh a glucose spike is inherently a bad thing and means that I should try and avoid that right so if fruit spikes glucose that must make fruit bad so I should avoid it or I should put a load of fat on my fruit which will slow gastric emptying and then I'll avoid this glucose spike there is nothing wrong with an increase in glucose after a meal it is a completely normal response to consuming food and that's actually exactly why we have the process in place to deal with that right so even at the anticipation of food there is a slight increase in insulin so your body's very ready like as soon as you have like food in your mouth it's not even been digested it's nowhere near like increasing blood glucose levels yet insulin's already getting ready like it's already starting to be elevated right and there's a, there's some research that shows that even rinsing your mouth with something sweet can slightly increase insulin right not to a large extent because that would be very dangerous because then we would potentially fall into comas because then glucose levels would drop too low right so it's, it's very small but my point is your body like is prepared to deal with this glucose load especially if you're not diabetic right it's good it, this is what we're prepared to do and if you're someone who's active and moves a lot and this is the I guess this is the irony of it the people I see that are wearing glucose monitors tend to be like fitness obsessed people and there is absolutely no need for them to be concerned about their glucose levels the people who might benefit more from that are, are like pre-diabetics or people who have impaired insulin resistance which are likely to be much more overweight people who aren't very active but if you're like oh yeah I train five days a week I'm getting my 12,000 steps in I eat like a really healthy diet like there's absolutely no need for you to be monitoring glucose levels and I think it's going to be the new orthorexia if it's not already like this now obsession with first it was tracking calories then it was good foods and bad foods and then it was like only eating quote-unquote natural foods or healthy foods and now it's obsessing over glucose levels or insulin spikes well I guess you're only looking at the glucose from the glucose monitor but yeah absolutely no need to be doing that and and probably the most worrying thing is that if you ate your diet specifically to avoid spikes in glucose your diet would be poorer right because things like fruit and veg are actually very good additions to your diet and you would end up changing your diet to suit this glucose monitor that that would then mean that you eat less fruit and veg or if you do eat it you eat it with a ton of fat on top to to reduce the spike in glucose and slow gastric emptying not a very good idea um and then the, the other ones here are like carrots are very high in sugar so are also fattening which i take a personal offense to although i have moved on from my carrot obsession to my pea obsession i ate 
two whole bags of peas this week. In fact, more than that now because I went and got some more. <laughs> I just freaking love them. I'm, yeah, okay, I'm strange. So also, maybe don't do that because that's an excessive amount of peas, but I'm very much into peas right now. Okay, moving on. I love this one from Aileen. Being overweight is due to lack of willpower. And conversely, successful weight loss is all down to willpower. I hate this myth. I think it makes it seem like people are saying that people who are lean are morally superior somehow and have like better willpower than other people. It's just not true. Do you know what's much more likely to be true in the vast majority of cases is, and is for me, so I use myself as an example, I don't have better willpower than someone who's overweight. I just enjoy exercise and I enjoy eating well. Like I've literally just said, I really like eating peas. Like most people are probably like, oh God, I've had five bags of sensations this week. Like, and that's what I'm obsessed with. But no, no, I I actually enjoy eating well. And I'm not saying all the time. I'm not saying it never takes any effort. It does. It takes effort for everyone. It's completely unrealistic to be like, you know, because I think that can be a self- self-fulfilling prophecy or more just like a oh well they enjoy it and I don't so it's not my fault like kind of victim mentality thing as well it's not that you need to find something that you do enjoy or at least that you don't hate doing but if I hated going to the gym of course I wouldn't go as much as I do and if I hated eating healthy food and the way that that made me feel then of course I wouldn't eat as much of it right I actually enjoy these things I found a way to eat and exercise and live my life and stay active that generally for the vast majority of time I enjoy doesn't mean I always love it every single day but most of the time I do and that's why it's so easy to keep adherent to it and this is why our approach is all about not putting you on a horrible over restrictive diet which sure might get you quicker results for the in the short term but it's about living your life, enjoying your life, enjoying your diet, enjoying exercise, because that's what gives it longevity. And that's what makes it easier to stick to. And then you're working with yourself, not against yourself. So I think this whole thing about like, I lack willpower. No, no, often people are just basically surrounding themselves with temptation as well. Like if you come into my flat, like I don't have a ton of junk food in here now and again I have some chocolate in the cupboard or something but there's not just like loads and loads of junk food because yeah like that would require more willpower if you're surrounding yourself with temptation right if you and it doesn't have to be a huge shift right it could just be like oh if there's a there's normally like an open box of celebrations on my desk okay well I'm going to make sure I also have some fruit there or I'm going to make sure that it doesn't it's not actually left on my desk that maybe it's left on someone else's or it's left in the staff room like little changes like that actually make such a big difference or instead of thinking I'll come back from work then I'll get my gym stuff together and then I'll go to the gym think hmm is it going to be easier for me to just go straight after work then I'm not coming home getting distracted having to use willpower to get back out that door again I've actually put myself in a position where it's easier because I've brought my gym stuff to do the option that I want to do so I think that's a much bigger part than that someone lacks willpower we just need to look at their life a little bit and make some actually quite small tweaks so that they're not surrounded by temptation all the time and then it does require willpower much like 
so I guess the the point there, find a way to enjoy it, find a way to reduce the amount of willpower that you have to use, and then you won't need as much. And then same with like patience, which comes up a lot. If you just stop waiting, if you find a way to enjoy it, if you find a way to work with yourself and not against yourself, you need a hell of a lot less patience and you're going to enjoy it a hell of a lot more. And these changes are for life. And if you want to enjoy your life, and I want that for every single one of my clients, I want that for every single one who's listening, even if you're not a client, then that's the approach that you need to take. Okay, next myth from Maria. Women in perimenopause slash menopause need specific diets to have to, or have to cut out huge food groups. This sort of thing really bugs me. You and me too. You and me both? You and me too? I don't know. I think what we need to do here is appreciate more that everyone's an individual whether you're going through the menopause or not right so you're still going to have preferences and what we really need to figure out is what works for you and base it around what works for you now with menopause you're kind of basing it around what works for you plus the symptoms that you're struggling with but I mean it still comes under you like you are the focus and then it might be like your likes and dislikes what you're struggling with most at the moment why you're overeating right is it emotional eating is it boredom eating is it because you're struggling with symptoms of menopause oh okay which symptoms of menopause how can we help mitigate those problems that's how it should be approached not oh you're perimenopausal great I'm going to put you in this box and then I'm just going to give you what I give all menopausal women because you're all the same and that will work like it will not work And I've helped tons of menopausal women lose fat. Some of them do intermittent fasting. Some of them eat every three hours. Some of them have high carb diet. Some of them have low carb diet. Some of them have implemented the three to one diet. Some of them have gone lower fat. Like it doesn't matter. Actually, normally the approach I kind of try to take is how can I fit this around your life? What's the easiest way for you to create a calorie deficit? Given that you need to stick to these fundamental targets, What's the easiest way that we can figure out how that you can stick to how that you can stick to these? Wow. I'm gonna just tell you a little bit about my day because I think it will explain why I'm probably not as articulate as normal. I did not get much sleep last night. Mm, I think I went to bed at two and then I woke up at like six. Maybe I went to bed at three. Anyway, I got I think I got like three or four hours. Maybe three of unbroken sleep and then I got up I had some AFM calls which were fantastic went and tried to do a load of check-ins got some done but was not my top form so I thought I'm gonna take a break and do them tomorrow because these people deserve my full attention as opposed to like a half-assed check-in response so then I thought I do need to do the podcast because I've hold myself accountable to doing the podcast every Monday a solo one comes out every single Monday I don't know when the last time I missed one was so that's definitely not happening so then I had a nap because I thought I also want to show off my best for the podcast and um that nap hasn't left me in the best place I would say I feel very like um a little bit too hot but also just like um not like 100% sure where I am (laughs) I mean I know where I am I don't know you know the like post nap groggy feeling yes yes you know you all know what I'm talking about so just bear with me on that so I will do one more and then I'll wrap it up and I'll come back with part two 
where I haven't just woken up from a nap. <laughs> Maybe I will have, I don't know. Anyway, okay, so part, um, the last one I'll do is Rebecca's, which is that you've quote, unquote, damaged your metabolism with bad diets. And again, I think this can lead to people feeling like there's no hope. Like I've ruined it now because I've damaged my metabolism. Now I'm going to have to do this elaborate program that someone's charging me a huge amount of money for to reset my metabolism and then blah, blah, blah. And actually what's interesting is sometimes that works. A lot of people who are like, oh, I had metabolic damage and -and so-and-so influencer actually cured me by resetting my metabolism, doing my, whatever they do, like refeed days or like slowly ramping up your calories to reset your metabolism. What's happening is that you are becoming adherent to calories. So like, oh, we need to increase, like if you've been trying to diet on 1200 calories, the reason that you're not losing weight is because your metabolism's broken because you've dropped your calories too low. It's now in starvation mode. It's somehow storing calories that you haven't even consumed by magic. And what you need to do is start eating more to reset your metabolism. That's basically the lie that they sell. Now, on the the surface, I actually agree with probably what they're going to implement, which is let's increase your calories. Because if you're trying to diet on 1200 calories, the reason that you're not losing weight is because you're not being adherent, right? Unless you're four foot tall and you don't move all day, like even your basal metabolic rate is higher than 1200 calories. So that's not the reason. The reason is adherence every time, no exceptions. Like even if you're like, yeah, but I've got an underactive thyroid. Okay, well, if it's medicated, again, either it should be or or um that isn't the reason i've got pcos again there might be some metabolic um changes there so you might have a slightly lower basal metabolic rate but it's not why people who are like 70 kilograms plus aren't losing weight on 1200 calories ever never it's never happened it's impossible it's an adherence problem and that's certainly not me being like, it's your fault, you're just not sticking to your calories. No, 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 it is ridiculously hard to stick to those those calories. Like you've set your calories target too low or someone has set it too low for you. So you're setting yourself up to fail. So what you need to do is eat more, which is exactly what these diets will tell you to do. So what they're telling you to do is right and I fully back. It's just the rationale behind it that you've damaged your metabolism and kind of, I guess, like the guilt that people feel around that or just, the fact that it's just a complete myth or well not a myth it's just complete wrong um that that part I don't like but actually the the reason that people kind of buy into that is because when they do increase their calories they do start losing weight because you bump someone's calories up from 1200 to 1600 and then they actually start to stick to it hey then they're in a deficit then then they what Chloe always says this then we're off to the races apparently (laughs) Um, but yeah, then basically they start getting results and that's how that works. But you haven't damaged your metabolism, nor can you by dieting on too lower calories. You might become more efficient via metabolic adaptation, which is a completely normal adaptation to dieting. So the fact that you become a little bit more efficient as a smaller person and you simply weigh less as well. So your basal metabolic rate will be less. So you need less calories but it's not so much less calories that you're not losing weight on 1200 calories, right? It's just a completely normal and actually inevitable process. So your maintenance calories before you start dieting, so you start dieting at, I don't know, 100 kilograms, your maintenance calories are going to be more than when you finish dieting at 70 kilograms because you're a smaller person. 
And that's assuming that all other things are equal. So like you do your 10,000 steps, you go to the gym three times a week and you're doing the same kind of workouts. Just generally being a smaller person will mean that your basal metabolic rate, the amount of calories that are required just to maintain your weight is now lower because you you have less mass at 70 kilograms than you did at 100 kilograms. So you've not damaged your metabolism. It's just normal. It's why it's harder in many ways for smaller people to lose weight because they have to drop their calories lower or because they need less calories to maintain their weight as well. So if you're, I don't know, quite a petite woman, I've got quite a few clients who are like five foot tall and also have like PCOS. So actually even just maintaining their weight, even though they do you know, hit their their step target, but maintaining their weight in an obesogenic environment where they want to eat out a couple of times a week with their partner, like they have to, they have to be quite conscious of the food choices that they're making because their maintenance may very well be about 1600 calories thinking of two clients in particular that that um are in that kind of position and that just means you have to be a bit smarter with your food choices i hope part one of this myth busting series has been useful to you i might do a poll where people can send in their own myths but i actually have quite a few to get through on commit to six so i will work my way through those and be back with part two if you've enjoyed this please do share the podcast, tag me in it at ESG Fitness. I would love to hear from you. If you are interested in coaching and you want a no bullshit, no myth approach and just someone who wants the absolute best for you and is committed to getting you results, head over to esgfitness.co.uk, fill in the application form and I will email you. And most importantly, have a lovely day.